Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Welcome to the Johnson Center, the Hoover Institution's outpost in Washington, D.C. We're delighted to have you all here today for what I hope will be a very interesting conversation. Um, this is the latest in a series of talks we have here at the Hoover Institution called Opening Arguments, Conversations on American Constitutionalism, where we try to take a look at American constitutionalism in the best and broadest sense, not just what happens in the courts, but what happens in the country, who we are and, and how we govern ourselves. Uh, but today, is a, it's a delight to turn our focus back to the court, or at least to one of the court's greatest justices, Antonin Scalia, who, as we all know, passed away last year, unfortunately, and is, is sorely missed. Uh, but we have great reason to be grateful uh, to our two guests today, Chris Scalia and Ed Whalen, who uh, worked to put together a collection of Justice Scalia's speeches uh, that we're going to discuss today. Justice Scalia obviously was a famous judge and speaker and writer. Unfortunately, uh, his audience for speeches tend to be people who either could be there in person or who could watch now on YouTube a handful of speeches that are bouncing around. But that was too narrow a window into the breadth of uh, talks that Justice Scalia gave on a whole variety of issues. And so it's a real service that our guests today uh, put this book together. So let me just introduce them briefly. Sitting to my right is Christopher Scalia. Uh, first and foremost, we should mention Chris is the eighth of Anton and Maureen Scalia's nine children. Uh, he works in Washington, D.C., or across the river, I guess, uh, in public relations at CRC Public Relations. Uh, but he writes widely in publications like the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Weekly Standard, First Things, the Times Literary Supplement, and elsewhere on issues ranging from our culture to liberal education to the arts. Uh, before joining CRC, he was an associate professor of English at the University of Virginia College at Wise. Uh, we're delighted to have him back in the area. Uh, sitting next to him is Ed Whalen. Ed is president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, where he also directs the center's program on the Constitution, the courts, and the culture. Uh, he earlier clerked for Justice Scalia uh, and served in the Justice Department as Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel, effectively the executive branch's in-house uh, constitutional think tank. Uh, he also served as counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. But you might know him best as an author, primarily at National Review and National Review Online, where for a long time he has run the Bench Memos blog, which is a real service in terms of bringing the court's work and constitutionalism generally to a broad, broad readership. And so we're delighted to have you both here today. But let's talk about the book. Actually, first let's talk about Justice Scalia. Uh, what sort of speeches did he give and what sort of audiences did he speak to? Chris? Well, he, he gave, he occasionally spoke about the law. Uh, that, that was no surprise to us. Um, he delivered many speeches to legal organizations, and uh, he saw that as a great opportunity to explain what originalism and textualism were uh, so that people didn't have to rely on snippets of his scathing dissents um, in the Washington Post. Um, but we were, I think we were both surprised to find that he spoke about a lot more than that. Um, uh, some of the more surprising speeches we've discovered were uh, one he delivered to the, I always get the name wrong, the National Turkey Hunting Federation. National Wild Turkey Federation. <laughs> Wild Turkey, it's important. Um, and that was in Nashville, Tennessee. I think he spoke there a couple of times. Um, and he also spoke at Juilliard. Which that's pretty pretty good range there. Uh, and that was that was one of my favorite speeches because he was on a, uh, it was part of a symposium about America and the arts celebrating Juilliard's 100th anniversary. And he was on a panel with an opera singer, Renee Fleming, um, Stephen Sondheim, the, the songwriter, uh, and, uh, and David McCulloch, the historian. So, uh, and he spoke about the arts and the, and the First Amendment. Uh, so he spoke to all sorts of groups, uh, commencement addresses, of course. He spoke at my graduation. Uh, and uh, almost, almost half of my siblings' graduations, actually. So yeah. that was a pretty good in-house go-to guy there. Uh, we were really amazed to discover the, the, the breadth of occasions on which he spoke. And sometimes it would be just someone asking him out of the blue, hey, will you come speak to us? Uh, one example of that is a chaplain at uh, Cherry Point uh, Marine Corps Air Station in remote North Carolina. I uh, invited him down there to speak on, uh, to their prayer breakfast. And he gave a wonderful speech, um, which we include in the, in, in the volume, on, on tradition. Uh, and uh, you'll see 
speech after speech, you'll, you'll wonder, well, what's he doing speaking to this group? Now, when I mentioned this last week in an event, another one of his sons piped up that if there were good hunting or fishing in the area, that would be an attraction to get him there. So, um, well, um, did you get a sense from researching into his papers how often he was speak giving these talks? That's very difficult to gauge. We do have somewhere in his files, uh, at least for some period of time, a very detailed itinerary that would cover his speeches outside DC. We never actually looked into that to try to document how often he spoke. But one of the challenges with these speeches that we uncovered was figuring out just when and where they were given. Uh, most of them did not have that information on their face. There would sometimes be some intrinsic clues you could use to sort it out, a reference to a case decided last term, something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, more often we had to piece together information, play a sort of detective to, to figure out where these speeches were given. Well, since we've gotten into this, before we move to the substance of the book, just talk a little bit about the, the process in which how, how you started this, where you were looking for these speeches, how you, how you pared them down into what became the book. We received uh, close to 200 speeches, uh, both on disk um, and, and, and hard copies in, in boxes from his office. And we you got these from his his assistant, yeah, was it? Um, Angela, and and she she was a relatively new assistant, so she had inherited uh, most of them from uh, previous people running the chambers. So we just read through those, and uh, there were, there was some overlap. There were some speeches that had kind of different different bookends, but the same um, innards, I guess, or books, I guess, if I want to pursue that metaphor, and. Um, uh, but for the most part, they were pretty pretty distinctive speeches, and really the hardest thing was uh, I think Ed would agree was deciding what not to include. Um, when we started the project, there were a couple of pretty well known speeches I assumed we would include, uh, but we ended up not including them because there were there were better speeches that were more appropriate for a general readership than than the ones we had known about going in. Yeah, very few of these speeches have ever been published anywhere before. Uh, and uh, as Chris mentioned, there are some more famous ones, originalism, the lesser evil, the rule of laws, the law of rules, that did not make the cut um, because we were really uh, aiming this volume uh, for a general readership that, um, for, for which some of the legal speeches might, be, uh, might have been a little too arcane. And there, there, was, a, there was a speech about um, uh, the death penalty in Catholicism that had run in first things uh, in the early 2000s. I thought for sure we'd include that. And I think we even tried to include that. In, or we you you in tried. Case. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you promised not to tell that. Uh, and the, uh, I, yeah, it was just too, it was too in the weeds. It was just basically too Catholic a speech. So you're going to have to wait till uh, the sequel for that one. <laughs> uh, will there be a sequel? I'm just kidding. Um, um, now, I've heard you make reference in the past to his outline. He had sort of these notes he would take with him on the road, sort of his basic stump speech. Do you have a, are you reaching for a copy? I have a copy of the outline. Really? So... Um, in addition to his prepared speeches, Justice Scalia must have given on hundreds of occasions his sort of stock speech um, in favor of originalism and against the living Constitution. And for that speech, uh, whether you know, sometimes that speech might run 10 minutes to students at the Supreme Court, other times it might be 45 minutes, but he always insisted that, that he have the outline available. And uh, his assistant was telling us she was amazed when she stayed up all night trying to find his outline to discover that, you know, this is it. It has about 50 words on it, including one misspelled. It looks <laughs> like it was scrawled on a, uh, on a you know, napkin on an airplane. And we actually have the handwritten version, I think it was. It includes things like new orthodoxy spread to the people. There ought to be a law. Um, but but this, this became, in a way, well in part a security blanket perhaps, but also maybe just something that triggered memories, triggered thoughts on his part. Every time he would look at it, even if something wasn't there, he would remember, aha, this is where I work in the Prego joke. Uh, so we, we were expecting um, there to be a full-fledged version of um, a talk that we, that we saw on video, um, but we never found that particular speech. We did find, in the end, a speech that he gave in Australia that um, is the, a fairly full version um, of, I think, one version of the outline. But again, every time he gave the speech, I'm sure he simply uh, riffed variations on the theme uh, depending on his audience, depending on his mood. But yes, this is it, all, all 50 words or so. And you said the, the Prego joke? 
Oh, the, the Prego joke was my favorite moment of any of his speeches because it was so lowbrow. It really appealed to me. Um, it, it was a reference to a TV commercial. He was, so he was describing um, current attitudes towards the Constitution. Basically, if anything is good, it's in the Constitution right now. Um, if you like something, it, it must be in the Constitution. Uh, and so he compared it to an old uh, Prego uh, pasta sauce commercial. Uh, variations of this ad ran in the 80s, where, as he described it, um, somebody would be, uh, a woman would be cooking, um, would, uh, cooking dinner, and it would be, uh, the husband would come in and see the, the jar of Prego and say, what, what are you doing? You're, you're using this store-bought sauce? What, what about the basil? Does it have basil? And she says, it's in there. How about the oregano? It's in there. Garlic? It's in there. And dad would say, we got that kind of a constitution now. <laughs> you want a right to abortion? It's in there. You want a right to die? It's in there. Never mind what the text says. That's irrelevant. Um, and that always had me in stitches. But uh, I, don't worry. It, it, so that speech isn't in the book, but I was sure to transcribe that for the introductions. Yeah, it reminds me of a speech I saw him give once, and he's talking about the court's abortion jurisprudence, right, the undue burden standard. He says, and how does the court even begin to think about this? You know, we hear a case, and we go back into our conference room, and we start to say, well, is it, a due, is it an undue burden? I don't know. It sounds like an undue burden. Well, I think it's a due burden. Well, maybe it's an undue burden. Went back and forth. Um, um, but so, sure, for some of the talks, he spoke off an outline, but he, he generally, for the ones that, you can, that were contained in the book, I mean, obviously, he prepared them in detail, really scripted them out at length. He didn't just get up there and kind of wing it. I mean, he really no. took this seriously. Well, he, he had prepared texts. These are all um, prepared texts with the exception of the turkey hunting one, which is a, a transcription. Um, even then, though, it's clear to us that he would use the text more as a guide than as a script. Yeah. Uh, as Chris observes in his uh, introduction, uh, textualism is a guide for judges uh, discerning the law, not advice for uh, speech givers. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think he understood that uh, he could deviate from the text um, when giving speeches. Yeah. Um, well, the first speech contained in the book, it's fitting since uh, yesterday was Columbus Day, the first speech in the book is called What Makes an American? And it's a 1980s talk he gave in October of 1986, a month after he joined the court. Um, he, as you say, in the course of explaining uh, why he was proud of his Italian heritage, he drew a broader lesson about what makes an American. I, mean, I thought it was just a lovely speech to begin the book with. So I'd like to hear how you decided to put this one first and, and sort of reflect on the broader themes that you obviously thought were so important that, that needed to go first. Well, we, we thought it would be, be best to save the legal material for later let people ease into the book if they wanted to. Obviously, these are speeches. You don't re need to read them uh, in order. But if, if so if people wanted the legal speeches, they could jump to that. But this was a, starting with these speeches about ethnicity, and, and particularly that one about his um, Italian ancestry and Italian immigrants, uh, would be a good way to kind of ease people into, into his general attitudes about America and what made Americans, what makes us Americans. And, and his, his central point. Um, to that particular group was, well, there were a couple. First, Italians are great, and they should celebrate uh, their ancestry and, and all that they accomplished. Uh, but they were also Americans now, and they were Americans uh, because um, what makes Americans Americans is belief in, in the law and equality under the law. And I think we see uh, in these early speeches, as well as throughout the book, his deep understanding of what America is. Uh, an understanding that, that was a backdrop to his judging and certainly shaped his understanding of the limited role that judges ought to have in the American experiment. But he just had this deep appreciation uh, for American principles, for American heroes like Washington and Lincoln. There, there are speeches about each of them uh, in the book. Uh, and you see this comprehensive, coherent worldview that uh, manifests itself, not simply in talking about the American character, but also life and learning, the, the importance of civic education, the role of education generally in shaping Americans into the sort of people that the framers understood citizens needed to be if this experiment uh, were going to succeed. Chris, were you looking for a particular passage? Well, this is, this is the uh, passage I paraphrased poorly. 
What makes an American, it has told us, is not, the same, is not the name or the blood or even the place of birth, but the belief in the principles of freedom and equality that this country stands for. You know, you, you mentioned the, the, the speeches in, towards the back on, on Washington and Lincoln and others. That's one thing I was struck by in reading through the book is, is Justice Scalia wasn't somebody who inserted a lot of references to people like Tocqueville or Lincoln in his actual judicial opinions. In fact, I was working on a piece about Scalia for one of the magazines before the book came out, and I mentioned that there wasn't an explicit reference to Tocqueville, although it was very Tocquevillian themes, and you pointed out, I think, on Twitter, uh, don't worry, it's in there. Um, and, um, and I just, I, and, it's a one, and this is one of the things I want to explore further in a little bit, but one of the things I think is so important about this book is, is you actually see these themes and these ideas and these people and figures that sort of undergird so much of his thought, mm -hmm. and he didn't feel the need to put it all in his judicial opinions, but it's there um, sort of quietly. Yeah, uh, I, I considered that, that, that difference from his opinions. That's interesting. Um, there are, there's definitely clear overlap between what he argues here, especially in the legal section, and his opinions. But these are, you know, as I've been saying, more accessible than his opinions because they're not, you don't have footnotes, you don't have the specific details of particular cases under discussion or anything like that. And you have the advantage of getting, have, you have the ability to encounter the whole argument for originalism or the whole argument against legislative history unencumbered by, you know, the particular case at issue there. Uh, I hadn't thought about that difference, though, with the, with the opinions, too. That's interesting. Lest yeah. to sound too sober, I want to just emphasize that the book is also uh, laugh-out-loud funny in, in places, as you, as you expect from Justice Scalia. Uh, one of my favorite commentaries on the book so far uh, comes from Edward Giro, the actor who depicts Justice Scalia in the, the, the play The Originalist. He wrote last week, can't put it down, hilarious, incisive, brilliant. And I think uh, the reaction we've seen so far uh, has combined uh, appreciation for the insights with, uh, again, a surprise at, at just how entertaining and amusing uh, the book is in many parts. Yeah. It, it, it's mm -hmm. funny in part because I think people would expect it to be funny. I think people would be surprised at how self-deprecating the humor is a lot of the time. Um, this is one of my favorite lines, my, if I may read from the beginning of games and sports, this is a description of what he played, what he used to do growing up in Queens. I have, been a I have been asked many, many times, to what do I attribute my well-known athletic prowess? <laughs> I personally never asked him that, but <laughs> others may have. Uh, and then another favorite of mine is, uh, this is the, I think this is from the one he delivered before uh, Congress a few years ago. You should be warned that I will probably be telling you some stuff you do not want to hear. That is part of my charm. <laughs> I find it not very helpful to tell people things they want to hear and thus already believe. There's also a uh, very funny roast of Justice Ginsburg. Uh, Justice Ginsburg has written a, a beautiful foreword to this book. And I think their friendship um, speaks more broadly, I think, to, well, it speaks well of both of them, but of Justice Scalia's capacity uh, for friendships across ideological lines. Mm -hmm. You see that in some of his tributes to other friends near the end. Uh, he recognized and admired the good qualities in other people, even as he uh, could disagree with them uh, very fundamentally. He loved to argue. Uh, he saw argument as a path to the truth, not as a, as a, as a sparring game in which you try to score points on the other. And uh, the, again, this, this wonderful friendship with Justice Ginsburg uh, and that Mrs. Scalia and Marty Ginsburg were, were part of as well is, I think, such a testament uh, to, to his character. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that talk, he gave it after he had left the D.C. Circuit to join the Supreme Court, but Ju Justice Ginsburg was still on the D.C. Circuit, right? So he's writing That's about right. That how was much on, you missed her. on the uh, 10th anniversary of her service on the D.C. Circuit, so I think that would have been in uh, 1989. And that, that's, that, um, that context explains the end of the speech. It's funny most of the time, but at the very end, Dad gets a little uh, sentimental. It's clear that he misses her as a colleague. So the last couple of paragraphs are basically him saying how much he missed her, what a great colleague she was. Yeah, and on the point about Justice Scalia's friendship across ideological lines, not only you know was his support of his public support of Ginsburg probably helpful in securing her the nomination, but he, uh, he reportedly had sort of pushed. He had the opportunity to tell somebody in the Obama White House that he wanted Justice Kagan 
on the Supreme Court that he really respected her. And that I heard the story written up somewhere that that really may have put wind in her sails. I mean, it's a real testament. I mean, she obviously had excellent connections as, uh, already. Yeah. Um, I've heard the similar story. And he also really, uh, he, he liked and admired um, Justice Kagan a lot. He uh, taught her to hunt right. um, during their years on the court. And uh, yeah, I think that's another example of well, in terms of the, his reflections on his friends and so on, one of the books that this reminded me the most of I was reading through was, of all things, Bill Buckley's, so the collection of Buckley's books, uh, articles, Miles Gone By, where Buckley writes a lot about his friends in a similar way. Obviously, your, your father and, and Bill Buckley were different in many ways in terms of style, but just in terms of writerly quality and writing about friends, I thought that, that came through um, a lot. And by the way, while we're talking about the more lighthearted speeches, I do have to point out, while the first speech is about what makes an American in terms of the Italians. The second speech was called An Italian View of the Irish, uh, or The Italian View of the Irish. And he had a good view of the Irish since your mother uh, was right. Irish. And delivered so, on St. Patrick's Day to an audience of, uh, of Irishmen, Irishwomen in New York City. And he, uh, yes, celebrated in a very fun way what he saw as the qualities of the Irish. No, it's, it, you're going to say something? No, I just, I heard passages of, of that speech very often at the dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> what was the Irish's view of the Italians? Uh, <laughs> Did you get that at the dinner table, too? You have to wait for my mom's collection. Of okay. So just so everybody knows, I mean, the, the, the book is broken down thematically. So first, on the American people and ethnicity, then on living and learning. And so that's where you get things like the Juilliard speech, which is beautiful, um, the games and sports, turkey hunting and education. Then it's on faith, on law, on virtue and the public good, and on heroes and friends. So were the, these themes pretty self-evident as you worked through the pieces, or were, there, were the themes you wanted to include but just didn't have room for? Well, I think some of the larger themes were uh, evident. Uh, some speeches could be tossed in one category uh, or another. Um, but, but I think we, in the end, we were able to come up with a coherent organization. We haven't really talked much about his speeches on faith. Uh, which I think are some of his most beautiful speeches. Um, he has one speech that um, titled The Christian as Cretan mm -hmm. that uh, was perhaps his favorite, I think it was his favorite non-legal speech. It's basically a reflection on Thomas Jefferson and St. Thomas More. He referred to the um, speech by its nickname, The Two Thomases. And um, among other things, uh, contains the lessons that he absorbed about about St. Thomas More from, from attending the, the, the uh, A Man for All Seasons uh, in his opening season in London uh, in 1961, I believe, uh, while he and uh, Mrs. Scalia were uh, touring, maybe it was 1960, uh, uh, were uh, touring uh, the continent on a uh, one-year scholarship he had after law school. But you see his... Uh, how important his faith was to him, and you'll see that in a lot of these speeches. At the same time, he emphasizes, and I think it bothered him that this point was misunderstood by many, he emphasizes that, that his faith tells him not to, not to indulge his faith in judging, that he understands what the role of a judge is, the role of a judge is to decide what the law means, not to indulge one's policy preferences or moral convictions, and that the only uh, commandment uh, that he thought really spoke to his carrying out his duty as a judge was the commandment, thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not lie about what the Constitution means. Thou shalt not lie about what other laws mean. So uh, I think if you read his speeches on faith carefully, including a speech on faith and judging, which I think um, resonates in light of some of the recent controversies over um, the mistreatment that a current um, judicial nominee, a, a former law clerk of Justice Scalia's, as it happens, uh, has received, uh, you see this, this comprehensive understanding of just how everything fits together. Are you going to add anything? It, the example he, he gave uh, that addresses what Ed was saying um, about kind of the, the distinction between faith and judging for my father was, uh, was abortion. And one of his speeches, he, he says, you know, look, if you if you want to applaud me because um, of my, you think my pro-life uh, record uh, is an outgrowth of my Catholicism, then I'm afraid you, you are misinformed. Um, I vote as I do um, because of how I understand the law. Yeah, he would even reject the, the um, pardon me, he even pro reject yeah, the pro-life. Right. He was anti-Roe, not yeah. pro-life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then um, 
Ed mentioned Christian is Cretan. There's a line from that speech I really like uh, towards the end. It is the hope of most speakers to impart wisdom. It has been my hope to impart to those already wise in Christ the courage to have their wisdom regarded as stupidity. Um, and he addressed this, as Ed said, he, he delivered this speech very often. And I remember in the mid-90s, it stirred up a little bit of a, well, more than a little bit of a controversy. Uh, surprisingly, the Washington Post reacted negatively to one of his speeches and ran, I know, I was surprised too, uh, and, and ran, um, I don't know, kind of a, a hit piece, willfully misinterpreting the speech. Well, a front page article that, among other things, had no idea where the phrase, fools for Christ's sake, came from. <laughs> and so a sort a of bumper sticker, biblical right? illiteracy, um, <laughs> you know. And that, well, actually, that, that lie, that speech stirred up some controversy again in the last decade or so. I, I remember suddenly this being rediscovered somewhere in some article and somebody criticizing, criticizing it. Well, at your point, though, about religion and, and, and his faith informing his view of what it was to be a judge, it's one of the reasons why I liked so much the title of one of his famous speeches you mentioned earlier, Originalism, the Lesser Evil which as I've, I've sort of reflected on over the years, and the, the real, uh, such a wonderful select choice of a title, right? It just concedes from the out outset that originalism isn't perfect, right? That he's not trying to come up with some perfect framework for judging. He understood that it was flawed. It was just the lesser of possible evils, which I think is an amazing way of, of putting it. And he recognized that the, one, one of the supposed um, appealing aspects of the living constitution is that it can deliver whatever result you want. I mean, how can you say that a, a, um, a result that the living constitution dictates is wrong? There's no standard. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, um, but, but he also emphasized that the living constitution uh, has a false promise. It claims that somehow this antiquated constitution is, uh, isn't adapted to the flexibility we need in modern times. But then it entrenches the modern elite's current preferences in a way that makes it impossible for current or future generations, or very difficult to, to revisit those. Uh, so there's a lot, a lot of good speeches on, on um, originalism radi radiating out from the central concept. You can see it in his speech on legislative history. Uh, you can see uh, his discussion of the role of a judge, interpreting the Constitution generally. Um, he focuses on some specific issues like free speech and the religion clauses. And I think uh, this will enable uh, not only lawyers, but um, ordinary people to uh, have a full appreciation of uh, his, his understanding. Um, a quip at the end reminds me about the ordinary people reminds me of a, a quip from our friend Gary Schmidt at AEI who told the New York Times the Constitution is too important to be left to lawyers. Um, and so one of the, you know, that is, and Chris, you touched on this, one of the, you know, when we get to the legal part of the book, and it's in the heart of the book, we've already sort of gone through the, some of the fun stuff. When we get to the, the constitutional work, um, Ed, you'd, obviously you'd known Justice Scalia when you clerked for him, and then you're writing about him for years, and you're working on legal issues in the Justice Department. And so now you're tasked with collecting his legal speeches. And I'm wondering, as you, as you thought through those, you know, editing which speeches were going to go in and so on, and, and reading through that body of work, I mean, how did it compare with his legal opinions. I mean, Chris already said there's, in some ways, it's a different audience, it's a different context. Um, what did you think as you went through? Well, there are a number of brilliant speeches that um, I simply ruled out from the beginning because they were on too fine a point to possibly be of interest to, to, a, to a broad audience. Yeah. Um, so I, I was trying to uh, make sure I wasn't being too much of a lawyer in reading through these speeches. Uh, trying to figure out the ones that I thought um, would, would be um, most appealing to a broad audience. Unfortunately, there were so many to choose from that, again, as Chris said, that the, the, the challenge wasn't to figure out what to include. It was, it was what, to, what to drop. I mean, what's a phrase that bubbled up sometimes I'd see in his talks that are available online, he'd say, interpreting the Constitution is lawyer's work. Right? That's why we entrust the work of constitutional adjudication to judges who aren't elected. Right? We can trust that they're doing the right job when they're, when they're treating it as lawyers' work. But I was always struck by that phrase because it, it made it sound like the work of constitutional interpretation or, or constitutional judgment is something taken away from the people and sort of reserved to judges. But, I, but then the theme of this book seems to be to explain why legal interpretation in its narrow, you know, narrow sense in the work of the courts is you know, rightly trusted to, to judges. Well, I think that those concepts can be reconciled. 
uh, I think he understood that there can be lots of very difficult issues that work their way up to the Supreme Court. And it takes um, the lawyer's craft to determine the original meaning of a provision, to determine what that provision meant at the time it was adopted, whether we're talking about something in the original Constitution or one of the amendments, and then uh, to apply that to the case at hand. So uh, yes, he, he very much viewed judging uh, as a craft, mm -hmm. just as he viewed uh, being a lawyer as a craft. And as with other crafts, he would expect that, that uh, training uh, would uh, yield skill in, in exercising the craft. So, um, so I think it's, it's entirely consistent to um, believe in an originalism that understands that the Constitution was made and designed uh, for everyone, for the people, and under, uh, at the same time uh, understand that the craft of judging has to be applied uh, to decide specific cases. So in a way, his speeches, I'd say they reframe the issue a bit, right? Instead of having, the, you know, instead of presupposing that the courts are in the middle of constitutional work, right, they're the center of our constitutional system, uh, Scalia's view is they're not central, they're important, they're just not central, but they are very limited as well. It's almost a populist or popular case for, I don't want to say judicial supremacy because that's the wrong word, but it's a popular argument or populist argument for committing these issues ultimately to the Supreme Court so long as it does its work the right way. Right, and that's, that's the big caveat, as long as they're doing, as long as, as, long as the court and the, its justices are doing work the right way. And obviously his great concern was that the living constitution makes that harder. Um, I, I mentioned his self-deprecating humor. Uh, one thing that resonates throughout this collection is his kind of humble idea of what a ju judge's role is. Um, judges were lawyers, but that's all they were. They weren't, uh, they weren't metaphysical thinkers, or at least they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be the ones determining um, what the evolving standards of decency are. Um, that's, those things belong to the people, and too often the judges are, are the ones making those decisions, which in turn, uh, he believed, is why judicial confirmation hearings became so intense, because they, judges were essentially uh, to put it strongly, seizing power from the democratic process, so that was going to bubble up somewhere else, and it happened to be in the confirmation hearings. Yeah, he had a speech that he um, titled provocatively, Judges as Mullahs, um, which he basically was comparing the modern progressive understanding of the judge to you know, that of the theocrat imposing uh, his own uh, moral views on how things ought to be in society. He gave that speech uh, throughout the world. Uh, th there's been an, an enterprise, uh, especially in recent decades, to export the uh, US judicial system and its role in interpreting the Constitution to, to uh, other countries. And uh, he wanted to uh, warn against um, a potential downside uh, of that. You know, that speech, and there's another speech in the book, I can't remember which one, sort of raises the same theme as what he says in his famous dissent in the Planned Parenthood v. Casey opinion, right, where he says, the American people are perfectly capable of making value judgments for themselves, and if the court insists upon taking that power away from the people, then we should expect confirmation hearings to be brutal, right? This is in a moment in the aftermath of, I guess Casey was in the aftermath of Justice Thomas's Yes. Confirmation, and you had your eye clerk, yeah. That's the so that's oh really, really, and so anyway, I just thought okay, it was nice. That may be the speech, the crisis in judicial appointments yeah. that you're referring to. Yeah. Um, one of the themes that comes up across all parts of this book, um, I thought was really striking, was his, his his attention to education, including legal education, and especially with an eye to um, inculcating the civic virtues and values that he saw as, as necessary to sustain American constitutionalism. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because um, it, 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 it comes up especially in the education speeches, but not exclusively in the education speeches. It comes up over and over and over again. Well, you know, he had been a law professor, and he still loved teaching even after uh, he left that profession. Uh, his father had been a professor as well. He, he cared a lot about teaching, um, and so obviously he cared a lot about education. And specifically, with, so he delivered 
speeches about Catholic education, liberal education, um, and and civic education, which is I understand one of your favorites. Yeah. Um, so as, as far as civic education goes, you know, he he believed that for um, a democracy to work for our democracy to work effectively, the people needed to be intelligent. They needed to know their history and they needed to know how their government worked. And, and he loved citing the founders along those lines. But they also needed to have um, a strong moral foundation. Uh, it wasn't enough to, to know history. It wasn't enough to be book smart. You also had to, had to develop character. And he, and he came to that issue very often, or to that point very often, not just in civic education. He, he said as much in the um, commencement he address he delivered uh, at my high school um, and elsewhere. Uh, Ed, you have a quote ready. Well, he loved to quote uh, George Washington's uh, farewell address in which Washington um, emphasized, uh, declared that religion and morality are indispensable supports of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity. And Washington warned um, uh, that our republic might not survive if, if um, Americans were to abandon uh, religion. Likewise, quoted John Adams, a republic uh, is only to be supported by pure religion or austere morals. Public virtue cannot exist in a nation without private virtue, and public virtue is the only foundation of republics. So he had this, uh, this deep understanding that uh, belief in the American ideals over time requires the formation of these civic virtues and the practice of those. And uh, if we're not going to develop and practice those, um, this American experiment is, is not going to succeed. And in keeping with that, he believed that, along with the founders, an important part of developing that, uh, that character and that moral foundation was religion. It wasn't the only way, but it was a necessary way. And um, in a couple of speeches, he expressed grave concern about the court's role in pushing religion out of the public sphere. Um, one of the discussions on this theme, he talks about, he uses the word endures. He says our, 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 our capacity for constitutional government will endure only so long as the people sort of remain faithful to these values. And that word really jumped out at me because near the end of his career, when you talk about the living constitution, he juxtaposed it with not the dead constitution, but he would say the enduring constitution. And when he'd give the, that talk, you know, he'd refer to it as the enduring constitution, he'd you know, he didn't hint at what it was going to require to make it endure, right? Sometimes when you talk about the enduring constitution, you might assume he meant sort of a self-sustaining, self-enduring constitution. But this book really makes clear his, his own recognition that, that for that constitution to truly be enduring, it requires this outside, this outside force. Or you know, so I was, I mean, he was, he was definitely concerned, and that concern is apparent in these speeches, that, that people would lose sight of, um, the vision of the founders, and particularly the civic education, and also how the court should operate, and that's one of the reasons he delivered these speeches as as or delivered as many speeches as he did. It, it was his way of getting out of the court and bringing his argument directly to to Americans and 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 people around the world. You know, it's in, in discussing this theme. I, I know at some points it sounds a little pessimistic, right? Because we're talking now, especially in recent years, and fights in, over religion in the public square, fights over public, you know, values in education and so on. But just to be clear, in the book, you don't get a sense of pessimism. In fact, there's an, a speech from a couple of years, a couple of decades earlier, where he contrasts the United States with Europe in terms of how Europe sees religion, how Europe sees a relationship between faith and values and government. I mean. Throughout the speeches, even the late the late speeches, he, they come across as very optimistic, right? Yeah, I agree. There's concern, but there's there's definitely not pessimism. Or Ed? Well, I think you could be pessimis pessimistic <laughs> about this country and be even more pessimistic about Europe. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, uh, that's look, I think I think he uh, had a Catholic understanding of human nature as fallen, yeah. and as uh, civilization being something you need to rebuild with yeah. every generation. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think he had any, uh, you know, complacent um, optimism. He um, ultimately believed that, uh, with his faith, that um, what mattered wasn't wasn't of this world. Uh, but he wanted to do everything he could to uh, help uh, build the American project in his he, way. And he warns us uh, that I think most powerfully in um, the Holocaust Remembered speech he delivered in I think '98 uh, that that we backslide. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's no matter how sophisticated we think we are, um, 
how much progress we have made, we are still capable of great evil. And in a couple of speeches, he mentions that that's the great, one of the great lessons of the Holocaust, that it didn't happen in a backwater. It happened in Germany, which was an extraordinarily sophisticated and advanced society and culture. Um, yet they were still capable of that. Yeah, he makes that point really well. Let's talk about the Juilliard speech a little bit, because it is a fascinating speech. I mean, what was the, you sort of alluded to it briefly at the outset, but what was the context and what was the, the subject? Well, the, the context was the 100th anniversary of Juilliard, and, and their president um, knew of my father's love of opera, uh, and so he reached out to him and invited him, and he, uh, uh, Joseph Polizzi was his, his, is his name, still president, I think, and um, he said that my father was reluctant at first, but my father, being easily persuaded, as you know, um, uh, eventually came around to deciding it would be a good idea. Um, Meanwhile, apparently, Stephen Sondheim was also reluctant to, to participate in this because of my father's presence. But uh, Joseph Polizzi convinced him that it would, it would be worth it. Um, and if he didn't like something my father said, uh, he, could, he could respond. Um, so it turned out it went very well. And uh, my father and Sondheim got along very well. Um, they, uh, Polizzi told me they bonded over, over lunch before the symposium. Apparently. My father really admired a pen Sondheim used. I don't think my father was aware that um, Sondheim co-wrote Officer Krupke, which my father, a song from West Side Story that my father loved, and uh, would often sing around the house, and as Ed reminded me, even worked into an opinion. Um, but I, I wished I, I didn't know about this speech. It was a surprise to me. I wish I had known in advance. I could have told Dad, talk to him about that song. Um, but, uh, and the, this, Polizzi also mentioned, to his credit, I think this is w wonderful, he said he invited my father because um, he knew that my father would offer insights that uh, people in Manhattan wouldn't, especially people studying the arts in Manhattan, wouldn't encounter very often. So it was good for them to hear that. Uh, my father's speech on that occasion is, is wonderful. He acknowledges from the outset that he's kind of out of place um, in that environment. But after saying that, he makes clear he's a lover of the arts, um, and he, he expresses his, his love of opera and things like that. And so Polizzi said he, was, he had the audience eating out of his hands within you know, the first couple of minutes of the speech. It went over very well. Um, and it, it was, it, it's kind of a classic dad speech because my father loved to, even when he shared a lot of common ground with the audience, he liked to find a thing that he didn't have in common. And, and poke at that, um, not just to be annoying, but also to get people to really think about what they believe. And um, in, in that case, he, he basically challenged um, the assumptions that that audience might have about what the First Amendment protected. And he basically said, all of us lovers of the arts may believe that the First Amendment protects all of the arts that we love. I wish it did, but the fact is, it doesn't. And here's why. And yeah. it was very powerful speech and apparently went over pretty well. And more broadly in the speech, he makes the argument that, um, you know, that lawyers, he, he says, um, take the imagination, the mystery, the romance, the ambiguity out of everything that they touch. Um, uh, but he says, um, they serve the humble but essential function of establishing and preserving the social conditions that enable the arts to exist. Yeah. That's, that's, that's one of his themes here. Well, the closing line is just is wonderful. He talks about you know, the process that gives rise to, to law, and he says, that process produces a body of laws, laws like the law of contracts and the law of copyrights that may seem dull beside the inspiring provisions of the Bill of Rights, yeah. but that provide the conditions essential to the flourishing of the arts. Um, but that, that, that general argument about the, the, uh, the very sexy Bill of Rights as opposed to the very dull rest of the Constitution uh, is something he comes back to very often. That was one of his favorite points. And uh, when there still was a Soviet Union, he liked to, he liked to uh, say, let me just to prove his point about um, kind of the, the way we tend to overrate the significance of the Bill of Rights, uh, he would read uh, another country's Bill of Rights, and he wouldn't say which country. And it, just an elaborate Bill of Rights. It guarantees everything. Um, it's it's more uh, it's um, more liberal with uh, freedom of speech and, and every every possible provision in our Bill of Rights. This one's better, and he says. But do you know what country that Bill of Rights is from? That's the Soviet Union's Bill of Rights, and none of us would want to be there. 
because as generous as that Bill of Rights is, it doesn't have a, a firm structure of government that makes those rights actually possible to guarantee and enjoy. Well, we have some microphones in the room, uh, so if anybody has any questions, why don't we start, uh, feel free to raise your hand, a microphone will find you right there in the back. And anybody else? The second one will be right here. I, won <clears throat> I wondered if uh, in compiling the speeches you noticed any evolution by which Justice Scalia might say in a speech, an earlier speech, here's my take on this, and then maybe retrospectively a decade later he might say, you know, my views have changed on something, or for this audience I want to give you an insight that may be different. I think really the contrary is the case. I think there's a remarkable consistency. And we never thought, for example, about organizing the speeches chronologically precisely because um, they are so timeless and they fit together. Um, look, I'm sure you can find um, occasional comments where maybe it's thinking on something has changed over, 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 over 20 years. But on the, the big picture overall framework, I don't think we encountered that um, at all. You would see, of course, references uh, in some speeches to cases decided the, the previous term, and, and those, those, those would change over time. But um, I don't think there's anything where he, where, um, he said, you know, my view on this legal issue is radically different. Now, you do see that in some of his opinions, um, where he has reconsidered uh, uh, different things. But I don't, I don't think there's much of that in his speeches. There's a, a great speech about this sense in which he has a couple of he quotes a couple of dissents in which a judge changed his mind. I can't remember the specific judges and hilarious uh, and, and quite clever explanations of why those judges changed their mind, but not, him, <laughs> not, not his own mind. The, the one exception is a um, draft of a speech we discovered called, I was wrong about Chevron deference, but we didn't, we didn't include that one. <laughs> that would get your hopes up there. Oh, <laughs> joke, joke. <laughs> Oh, for a second, you really did get my hopes yeah. up. I was so excited. Um, second question right here, and then in the back. Uh, Mr. Whalen, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about um, his speeches as they pertain to his law clerks being a former law clerk. Um, if you can say anything about the, the role that clerks served with these, and if he says anything about the, role, the clerks in the judicial process. Um. So far as I can recall, I had zero involvement in any of his speeches. I don't think any of my law clerks back then, any of my co-clerks back then did either. I've spoken with some clerks in more recent years who were involved in some of the speeches and, and, and helped out on, 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 on some matters. Um, so I think that he would enlist help when and where he thought he needed it. Now, obviously, if he's writing um, something on on faith, he may be less likely to um, be expecting legal help than on other topics. Uh, so uh, my guess is that, uh, and it really is guesswork, that he um, did enl enlist law clerks from time to time, would give them specific assignments. Uh, I think we found some, a, dr a draft speech that hadn't yet been delivered um, at the time he died, where clearly a, a law clerk had prepared the whole thing. Of course, we don't know what, um, what that would have ended up with as if it had gone through the process. Um, as a law clerk, um, I found it wonderful to um, work with him precisely because he was such a careful writer and thinker. Uh, and I think one sign of a good writer, and he discusses um, good writing in a speech we call uh, writing well. I think one mark of a good writer is, is a writer who thinks consistently while writing, so very conscious of every word on always making sure that what, that what he's writing um, is intelligible and states uh, his point clearly. Uh, so Justice Scalia obviously had that. But he loved to come up with the figures of speech that, not for show, but would distill his ideas exactly. And he was such a master uh, at that. But just to see him, I, I remember um, seeing him sitting at his keyboard. If he was struggling um, with a part of an opinion, it's as though the gears in his head were turning. You, you could see, I mean, you would see the, the thinking manifested in the, the, the you know, the forehead uh, contorting. And then there would be the aha moment when he figured it out. Um, in terms of discussing 
law clerks um, in his speeches. I don't think that, that survived in any of the. No. Yeah. Tell them about uh, what he used to say that wasn't right. Oh, and you know, look. Um, again, I think any um, serious um, writer has encountered this, where you have an idea and you try to write it out and it doesn't work. He would say, "That doesn't write." And so you have an intuition going in, and then you discover that things are more complicated, uh, or there's a hurdle, and you then need to rethink, where did I go wrong? How should this be addressed? So yeah, that was his phrase, it, 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 it doesn't write. I, I asked him once, obviously I admired him as a writer, and I asked him once whether writing was easy for him, and he said, no, it's hard as hell. And, and that was obviously a great relief. Um, <laughs> and, and in the, the speech on writing well, he he describes the time and sweat that, that is necessary for, for good writing. I mean, he's a great writer because it looked easy. He makes it look easy, and he makes it look easy because he worked so hard at it. Mm. There's a question in the back row and then right over here. In uh, Edward Garrow earlier, and I I'm assuming both of you saw the performance. What did he get especially right? Did he get anything wrong? And secondly, I was wondering if uh, your father ever encouraged you or your siblings to attend the opera, and have you adopted a similar taste for it? Uh, have you seen the original? I haven't, and I, evidently I even mispronounced Mr. Gir uh, yeah. Mr. Giro's name. So, uh, I, I did see it. Uh, he, he nails the mannerisms. I really felt like there are a couple of times where I, it really was like I was watching my father, um, which was eerie. Um, and you know, as I have my quibbles about the play itself, I thought it was, um, you've, you've seen it obviously. Um, I thought it was unfair to him in some ways, but I appreciate what, uh, what it was trying to do. Let me just build on your saying that um, in watching Edward Gero, you can see your father. I think anyone who reads this book will see Justice Scalia and hear Justice Scalia. If you were fortunate enough to know him, uh, he will pop up in your mind again. But if you didn't know him, you will come to know him through this book. Mm -hmm. And I think that's um, one of the wonderful things for me um, about working on it and one of the reasons I'm so glad to have it, have it out. Yeah. Just really quick before the earth, yes. I just was going to tell a little joke about how much Ed looks like my father. I'm Facebook friends with Ed. And I posted a picture of my father a couple weeks ago. Other Ed, not it, me. Yeah. Well, we're not friends. OK. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and it tried to tag Ed Giro as my father. My father is Ed Giro. And I had to uh. keep it from doing that. So they look a lot alike. Well, just inter Oh, the opera question. Um, he, uh, he didn't try to get us to like opera. He tried to get us to not like rock. Um, he did. He did. He did try to. We, you know, when we were driving, when he was driving us to church or anywhere, he would play classical music and and explain what was going on. Um, I mean, he was it, just like kind of your classic uh, music snob trying to explain to the uninitiated what's going on in a particular song. It never actually works at the time. You know, you're, you don't actually ever convince anybody that it's a good song. But um, eventually, I started. I grew an interest, developed an interest in classical music, and started talking to him about it. And, getting his advice on what I should listen to. Um, my brother Gene is a big opera buff. I think my, my sister Catherine enjoys it as well. I've been to one opera. I never went with my father. I think, I think Gene did a couple of times. But um, we're all, we're all music, all of the siblings are music geeks, but it's not necessarily the same kind of music. Uh, Ed, when you mentioned you can really hear Justice Scalia's voice uh, in reading the book, I mean, in terms of actually hearing the book, Chris, you recorded the audiobook version yeah, of this. Yeah. What was that like, uh, sort of trying to actually, you know, be the voice of your father's speeches. I mean, you well, didn't. You did, obviously didn't try to impersonate him, but no. but just the process of of giving the speeches out loud must have given you some sort of insight. It was a real pleasure. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> no, I, I yeah. That the the trick was to not sound not to try to impersonate my dad, yeah. but um, but to still get the inflection right and and the pacing and the tone right. And it was it was exhausting. Um, uh, and the, the microphone picked everything up, so I'd have to reread a bunch of sentences and everything. And then, um, despite my father's uh, great desire, I never studied Latin, so there there are a lot of Latin phrases in there that I uh, I didn't wing, but I had a crash course in Latin for these specific phrases. Um, it was it was a great experience. Uh, obviously, I'd read all the speeches before, but then reading them straight through, 
uh, reading them out loud. Uh, that was a fun experience. It's always seemed to me that, I mean, obviously his speeches were written for the ear, but in a way his judicial opinions yeah. were really written for the ear, weren't they? It's, it's funny how um, casual some of his opinions were, and, but then there are moments of informality in the speeches as well, too. Yeah. It just seems very casual in that way, sometimes. Well, he loved to read uh, drafts of key passages of his opinions out loud. Yeah. And I think um, that he appreciated when they would really sing. He knew he, mm -hmm. he, knew he nailed it that way. So yeah, yeah he always had um, a, a, an oral component to his, to his writing. Yeah. There's a question in the, in the right here, sir, in the second to, or, yeah, second to last row. Uh, Henry Hatker, I, I thought I'd ask about whether Justice Scalia ever commented on the increasing powers of the presidency and the decreasing powers of Congress with respect to, say, declaration of war. Uh, this last occurred in, you know, World War II. Uh, President Truman called Korea police action. There was a Tonkin Gulf resolution for Vietnam, but it was a temporary thing. And then uh, Iraq, I... Uh, a more or less a vote to, to authorize the use of force. However, you know, when you go back to one about a declaration of war, all this is different and the president's power is now changed. It's much more solid and authoritative. And has he ever commented on putting all this power, you know, in one individual's hands? I just, I just add, I mean, he sort of, I don't want to say came of age, but I mean, he, he came into government in the 1970s at a moment when Congress was really pushing back against the executive branch. Some of his early writings at AEI were sort of pushing back against that, right? I think that's right. And I think at uh, Office of Legal Counsel, some of his uh, work there um, rejected congressional intrusions on executive power. But um, it's obviously possible for Congress to wrongly intrude in some ways and for the president also to override in other ways. Um, he has a speech that he gave to members of Congress maybe five years ago. It's in the book Under Congressional Power. I don't think he gets into the level of detail you're talking about, because I think he would have deemed it improper, um, apart from a, a, a case, to, to address those issues. But he certainly emphasizes the um, primary role that Congress ought to have generally under the Constitution. And I, I believe he faults uh, Congress uh, for not, not living up to that that role. Yeah, th let me just read a passage that's relevant. Uh, this is congressional power. Um, and this is, uh, he delivered this invitation, I think, to the Tea Party Caucus in 2011. Um, to be sure, it is fashionable to speak of the imperial presidency. But most of the extensive powers a modern president has, he has only because Congress has conferred them. And Congress can take them away. The reality is that Congress is a 900-pound gorilla in this town. And that is entirely as it should be. As I have said, the legislature is the core of, a, of democratic government. So this speech would be, he doesn't get into details of specific wars or anything like that, but, but that's, this speech is where he addresses that most clearly. This speech, by the way, was one that um, he received a lot of criticism beforehand yeah. um, by people like, how dare you accept this invitation from the Tea Party Caucus? Well, this was, a, this was an event that was open to all members of Congress. I think Nancy Pelosi and others ended up attending and praising him for his talk. Uh, which was not at all um, partisan, but instead examining these deep issues of constitutional law. Uh, other questions? Sure. Just wait for the microphone. Ilya Shapiro from Cato. What would uh, Justice Scalia have thought of the uh, battle for his seat uh, and the role it played in the election and everything that's happened <coughs> since? Would that be some sort of uh, operatic, uh, you know, just desserts, uh, or would he, would he have been enjoying that? Would he have think thought that it's a, you know, a sign of the end of the republic or somewhere in between? Well, it's sort of a weird hypothetical, Ilya. But um, <laughs> uh, look, I, he he um, wrote in Casey as well as um, in, in I think the crisis in judicial appointments about how the um, battles over the Supreme Court are largely a result of the court stepping beyond its proper bounds. So he saw this as, um, as, as entirely predictable. I'm confident that uh, he um, uh, would have been delighted that there's a fight to um, 
keep the seat in a way that would help salvage his legacy. Obviously, um, had he um, been alive and retired, he ne never would have said su such a thing. And uh, under your hypothetical, it's impossible for him to have said such a thing. But I think uh, he did. He did say um, at some point uh, in his later years, when he was asked um, how he would like to be replaced, he said, "Well, of course, I'd rather not be replaced by someone who would simply undo everything I've, I've been uh, trying to." achieve in the realm of constitutional law. Mm -hmm. When you talk about his legacy, what is his legacy, both in, in the law and sorry, in American society in general? His children. <laughs> <laughs> well, his legacy is obviously going to be contested, uh, and we'll see how that plays out. I think um, one of the, um, I hope one of the modest um, contributions this book makes is to help uh, explain who he was and what his views were. Uh, his uh, um, greatest legacy jurisprudentially is um, establishing, reviving originalism and textualism uh, as um, serious respected modes of uh, interpretation to the point that Elena Kagan uh, would say, we are all textualists now. Not really true, um, <laughs> <laughs> at least not. Or at least uh, maybe different justices are selectively textualists at different times. But if you look back to um, the mid-'80s uh, when he joined the court, uh, originalism was um, disregarded, scorned, ridiculed. Um, now there are um, prominent originalists on a lot of um, a lot of law schools, not as many as there should be. Uh, you have uh, many liberals trying to co-opt um, originalism by claiming that they, well, they have their own new brand of living constitution originalism. <laughs> um, but again, the, the, the brand of originalism is now so appealing that people are trying to steal it. Uh, you know, we'll see. Um, the ultimate answer to your, your question depends on what happens over the next um, 5, 10, 20, 50 years. And I think Justice Scalia um, you understood that um, you know history was written by 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 the winners, and um, you know we'll see whether um, it may well be that 20, 30, 40 years from now, our Muslim overlords may not have a great deal of interest in uh, in uh, uh, figuring out who was the greatest U.S. Supreme Court justice. Is that a reference to judges as mullahs speech? Is that? Um, what, uh, yeah, please, I please. Add one more thing. Please, uh, please. Not his greatest legacy, but maybe an overlooked legacy is uh, how how he uh, affected the way the, the court operated, how it functioned. Um, uh, you think of oral arguments. I think he, he brought a little bit more uh, pizzazz to them. They became a little bit um, more interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, and that the, the more experienced just justices who were there when he first arrived, I don't think we're big fans of that. But, but now it, it's kind of oral arguments are different than they were when he was when he first arrived. I think in large part because of him, and um, uh, I also I also it's my impression that his his interaction with colleagues was different than the way it had been and has kind of been uh, become part of the court too. Like uh, Justice Ginsburg and he would help each other with drafts and um, even obviously they disagreed very much. But as she describes in her foreword, they would. They would help each other, strengthen their arguments. There would be a lot of back and forth. And, I, and I, my understanding is that there's more of that now, um, not entirely be, because of him, but in, in part because of him, at least. Um, I hate to put you on the spot, but do you have a favorite speech in the book? My favorite son? Um, <laughs> no. Uh, I think. Um, is that about Gene? Go ahead, Ed. That's going to take me a little bit to recover from that one. I like um, games and sports was is uh, one of my favorites. Well, let, let me mention one um, we ha we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, the back towards the end, to collect the section heroes and friends um, includes a large sec uh, a section of memorials and eulogies. And there's one uh, that I think they're all very moving because I think as Ed may have mentioned, you learn about not only these people. And they're most of whom you wouldn't have heard of, and what they did, but also what my father valued from friendship. 
actually, Ed, can I have it real quick? Of course. Quick? And there's one Emer about Emerson Spees, who is the dean of the UVA Law School. Very the last one. There. And um, tagged it. There you go. Um, and it's, uh, I like it in part because I didn't know, I wasn't born yet, so this is, this is a um, recollections of, of my father's life that uh, I wasn't around for. So he was much less happy. Um, but there was this, uh, this passage. It's just beautiful writing. We've been talking about what a great writer he is. But um, this is almost poetic. It's, it, this this uh, large parts of this farewell reads like a short story. So he describes this, this, um, these episodes with Emerson Spees. Um, Emerson Spees loved to grow azaleas. And my father's describing that. Um, in those days, the venue of his domesticity was not only in the West, not only the Wesley Cottage, but also the big house at the end of Rugby Road. There, those who are fortunate enough to have experienced it will recall another aspect of Emerson's life, Emerson the azalea grower. I suppose there are more impressive displays of, of azaleas somewhere, perhaps in the Arboretum in Washington, but I have never enjoyed anything as much as the spring party Emerson used to throw for the faculty when we would stroll through several acres of resplendent azaleas gin and tonics in hand, taking only slightly more pleasure in the flowers than we did in Emerson's childlike delight in having produced them. I just think that's a great tribute to, to that friend, a beautiful memory. The writing is, is perfect. And there are so many wonderful passages like that throughout. Adam, I don't have a favorite speech, but I will simply say to you, and I, I mean this, if you think you might like this book, you will love this book. Yeah. And if you think you know people who might like this book, Buy it for them. They will love this book. Uh, well, I agree 100%. I mean, I, I, I came to this book expecting to like it, and I absolutely loved it. And so I'm grateful to both of you for everything you did to make this book happen, and, and grateful for the time you spent with us today. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much, podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.